coming up, award-winning writer-producer Larry Karaszewski joins Ileana in just a minute. Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussion, news, and interviews. Popcorn Talk. We talk movies. And now, it's the I Blame Dennis Hopper podcast, starring Ileana Douglas. Eavesdrop with Ileana as she interviews Hollywood's most prominent players about filmmaking, acting, and what really happens on the set of your favorite flicks and TV shows. Hi, I'm Ileana Douglas, and you are listening to the I Blame Dennis Hopper podcast. Uh, we've got a great show today. Larry Karaszewski, award-winning writer, and uh, has written some fantastic films. Of course, uh, recently, uh, People vs. O.J., Simpson, and uh, one of my favorites, Ed Wood. Uh, so I can't wait to talk to him. I would like to talk, because it's uh, Monday here. As um, I'm Tamara Burke, your co-host. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> So we've only done a few of these. We haven't gotten our rhythm entirely I'm, yet. So I just wanted to make I, sure people know who this random gal is. No, no, no. It's fine. It's fine. It's How fine. Could I just be? We'll, make we'll sure. fix all that up. And, <laughs> we'll fix all that up in post. It is Monday and it's very it early. It is I Monday apologize. and it is My early. delightful co-host. And I'm here with Tamara Berg, my delightful co-host, who brings in snacks and feeds I do. us. I do. Um I wanted to talk about something because uh, over the weekend, uh, you know, I hate uh, and I feel very strongly about this. I don't like criticism of any kind. And uh, I was I've been working on a, a script and I sent it to someone and they sent me an email and they said, now, do you want any notes on this? And I said, no, I just want you <laughs> to... Just tell me. I said, I just want you to tell me for clarity, does this does this story work? I made some changes. Does the story work or does it not work? And as I scrolled back through the email, uh, they proceeded to give me a long critique of mm-hmm. the script. And I just was like, I don't, this is not what I wanted. Like right. a, your opinion does not. I did. That's not what I asked you to do. I just right. asked you. So you have to be very, uh, you know, for people out there and doing things creatively, you got to be very, very careful when you're working on things who to send things to because everybody always, whatever you write, you can be writing the most original thing. And the first thing people want to do is, you know what? This is just like, well, this is just like the plot oh, of the Andy Griffin heavens. show that I saw last night. Do you know that? Oh you know, my gosh. Or, um, but, and somebody once said to me, I was remember I was in a car, we were driving along, and I was talking about some project I was doing. And uh, my friend said, he goes, well, you just want everybody to love you. And I said, yes. Of course you do. Yes, unconditionally. You so, pretty much hit it on the head. Yeah, absolutely. So how do you, how do you feel about criticism in your well, work? Yeah, I mean, we could talk about both sides of it, because I have actually lost friends. Mm. over critiquing uh-huh. their their um their work and you know it was one of those things where i usually and john who's our our one of our producers here sitting on the couch john has also done this when people say i'd like you to read my script or i'd like you to look at my work i always ask them beforehand do you want me to just tell you it's great because i can do that right you know and that's i think that's an absolutely valid position to come from you know if you're a vulnerable artist and sitting there going, you're the first person who's going to read this. Mm-hmm. I, I need a little bolstering. I think that's valid to say, and I would like you to just love me right now. <laughs> yes. And then I, or I will say to these people, or would you like, you know, a little bit of feedback? Like, do you really want some and come at it from, you know, from the place of, of helping and mm. not being nasty because some people do want the feedback. And, you know, and, and yeah, I'm one of them for sure. I'm definitely one of the ones where I'd like to give you this and I'd like you to just tell me it's awesome and I'm awesome too <laughs> and that my hair looks good today. And I never, uh, <laughs> I never, I'm one of those people, I never read reviews. Right. Uh, I did an off-Broadway play and I, I could tell we were pretty much shredded. <laughs> but, mm, because but, other people read yeah, them. I could just, it was a fantastic one of these days I do – this was a story actually that did not make it in the book. I was kind of uh, – it was a play I did called The Moment When mm-hmm. with uh, Mark Ruffalo, Kieran Culkin, oh, wow. Phyllis Newman, 
Uh, originally, Estelle Parsons was in the play. So, so it's not in the I Blame Dennis Hopper book, it but it not. will be in your next book. Yeah. It'll be in my, because it was a crazy experience about doing a, a play that was a work in progress. So each night we were going out with saying different words and, oh, and, sure. and in previews. And by the time uh, we got reviewed, I, I, I mean, I didn't want to read the reviews, no. but I could tell the, no. ca- the cast came in and they had read reviews. <laughs> Mike Nichols uh, famously was quoted as saying, uh, it takes 30 seconds to read and 30 years oh, to forget. Yeah. So. Well, you know, the thing is, is that we are hardwired, you know, from an evolutionary standpoint to receive, hold close mm. and value the negative feedback more than right. the positive feedback. And so that's, I think that's absolutely true. You know, we go, oh yeah, your hair does look amazing, but boy, yeah. you're, you know, whatever. I mean, we're just so hardwired to, to take that to heart so much more which is i think a really good reason to not be reading reviews because they can crush you i think so for me personally uh, you know everything goes in my brain so i start to become very self-conscious i remember uh working with a director and again uh, all my life all the directors i worked with and i I wrote about an experience in the book where i had totally screwed up a scene mm. completely like a very expensive scene during goodfellas <laughs> i have one li- got one line and i <laughs> messed up my one line and uh you know marty came running through hundreds of people he goes technical sorry everyone technical difficulties and then he came he whispered in my ear he goes don't don't do that again and i said i know I know. I'm so sorry. Oh, that is in the. I remember that one in the book. That don't, hurts my stomach a little bit to don't, read that. Don't, don't that do that. Story. Again. Don't yeah, <laughs> and uh, you know, and I knew as soon as I did it. But it was it. It so lasted in me that that's the kind of care that you need with actors. And I've had, uh, I've uh, had done other experiences, as I said, you know, working with directors where you're doing a scene and you hear the director going, "What is she doing? What is she doing? I told her what." You know, I hate this kind of acting or something like that. Or uh, I had a director once say that I was, we were doing, I was doing a scene and she said, um, he goes, you're too big. And I said, what, what, what do you mean? The, the, the acting is too big. And she said, no, you're, you're too big. <laughs> and I said, what does that mean? I said this, I said, well, the stage direction says she flounces into the room. I mean, I'm, I think I'm flouncing. Right. As opposed to slinking. Or, yeah. Yeah. But she kept. So I kept doing the scene, and each time I would do the scene, she just would look at me and kind of shake her head. And the rest of the movie, I kept trying to make myself physically smaller. So even though she never, I'm, you know, she said something in two minutes, and I remembered it for the rest of the the rest of the shoot. I was I was only two inches big by the. By well, the and the you know the other thing I was thinking about when I was thinking about criticism is. Number it. one, it's an opinion, mm. right? Yep. And you have to consider the source of that opinion. So where are they coming from? Again, are they coming from a genuine place of assistance or help or kindness? Mm. Or are they coming from, like I think so many critics, I don't mean the critics as a profession, but someone who's crit- critiquing, yes. coming from competition, coming from you know needing to push people down and mm-hmm. that kind of thing. And so again, I think I think it's a thing where you have to really consider the source and realize that just because someone has this opinion doesn't mean it's right. Well, I've seen so many people and I write about this in my book be killed by criticism from an acting teacher, you know, right. when you're very vulnerable oh, yeah. and you're doing something and I certainly have experienced uh when I was in school just people not seeing a speck of talent right. <laughs> in me. Right. You know, and I'm just undaunted. I'm just going to go on, you know, but People do feel they have a, I think that it's more, it's not a critique. A critique is great, but an opinion, I I don't care about someone's opinion. Their opinion is usually uh, something, I feel something, you know, negative that that can potentially get in your head. It's very challenging, you know. Do you have a, do you have a method for overcoming that? I just try to remember all the times in my life where people have said, it's no good. You know, I mean, when I was doing stand up comedy, uh, my roommate, I would do my jokes in the living room. I'd tell him, you know, and as I said, he'd go, You are not funny. <laughs> you know, he says, It's not funny. And I, you know, you go, I think it's funny. So you have to have a kind of belief in your, you know, in yourself and be extra, extra careful 
when you're putting something out there. Because I think right. that so much of it is a childlike belief in your own uh, project. Every story's already been written. Um, you know, we're going to talk to Larry Karaszewski. Mm-hmm. You know, everything has been written, every plot that, you know, right. you're not going to. You're Invent not gonna, something new. Yeah, exactly. And so it's the it's the way that you carry out something. I think that you know that makes it uh, that makes it special. It could appeal to you or not appeal to you, but in my, you know, I, that's why I always say to people, I'm not clarity. That's all I'm interested in for mm-hmm. for people if they're reading something is clarity. Yeah. I don't want to hear your personal opinion about if you like the story or don't like the story. I, I really uh, yeah, I agree. I mean I'm you know if I'm reading someone's script about Star Trek, mm-hmm. you know, I it's not my cup of tea. But you know, clarity. Does this make yeah. sense? Yeah. And those are the kind of best you know notes that um that you know that that I think, except that when I guess when you're in a dressing room trying on a bathing suit, <laughs> you look at another girl and you go, "Does this make me look fat?" <laughs> oh, you got to be careful there too. I know, well, you know, clarity on that. Ultimately, <laughs> right? The ultimate, ultimately, the thing about criticism is that you know we're artists, right? Yeah. So our um, you know our work comes from inside, and it's you know very personal, and so the critique can be a real confidence killer, and and that's I think you know, it's just wretched, I miss, <laughs> you know, to kill someone's dream. What I miss is film criticism in the way that somebody like Roger Ebert, Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert uh, mm. used to, you know, critique. But the whole now, you know, swipe to the left, swipe to the right mentality uh, of, you know, thumbs up, thumbs down. I, I don't. I don't really appreciate, you know. Well, it doesn't do anything. It doesn't help your project either because, you know, it's like being in the writer's room. If you don't have a fix, don't 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 open your mouth. Yes. Absolutely. You know, and again, I try. there's so much out there. There's way too much material, but I, you know, I'll go through the Amazon Prime or Mm -hmm. the Netflix and I try to, you know, watch things and, uh, you know, see, okay, I, I I like this. I agree. I don't, you know, I don't agree, but I try to get a general sense of what is out there. And, and, uh, like I was watching the new, uh, the Woody Allen series last night, Mm -hmm. which kind of fell in certain areas, but in other areas, you know, it was my goodness. Elaine May is amazing. I loved watching Mm. her. Uh, so, you know, I always try, I, I do, it sounds a little Pollyanna, but I absolutely try. I love movies so much and I understand how difficult they are to make that I do. I try to find when I'm looking at something, unless I really just resent that they've taken my two hours away. (laughs) I try to really look, I look at the scene, I study the scenes. I say, you know, geez, I really like this production design. it's nice music that they used. I love the clothing there. Yeah. I like that was a great moment there. You know, I, I don't feel anybody goes into anything trying to make something bad. So therefore, I always, always try to be sensitive when, you know, watching somebody's film. Um, I, I once had a very funny experience of film I was in and I got invited to a screening and I thought it was a notes screening and oh, at the end of no. the movie, this is, this is a true story. Oh, my, my friend, my, uh, my friend Wayne Fetterman, who's going to be on the show, uh, we, we sat down and we were taking notes during the movie and the lights went up. And I said, uh, I said, well, the first thing I want to say is that the first scene is very confusing. And the, and the guy and the director looked at me and he goes, the picture's locked. Oh, it's locked. And I went, oh. <laughs> you know, like, kind of like, oh, okay. All right. Oops. I'm just going to sit here and clap. It's fantastic. It's amazing. But, but notice again, I didn't go, what were you, did you waste, what did you waste right. four weeks? I right. said, it's confu- confusing. Yes. Oh my gosh. All right. What's not confusing is our first guest, yeah, let's Larry Karzuski. Let's in. bring him in. Yeah. Let's talk about some movies. I'm very excited. Larry and I once, uh, Larry almost made my book. He almost, he almost made the Alive book. You can sit right here, Larry. Um, Larry Karaszewski. Now we met, truth be told, we, we met, you almost made my book, but my editor said I dropped enough names. <laughs> <laughs> actually said that. 
<laughs> he said, I dropped enough names that I couldn't because we shared. And I, I tell the story that I was on my way to do a live, the film Alive. Right. No, I was on an airplane and you came and sat down and I recognized you because I knew you as an actress, but I was not, I was, I had made films by that point, but I, I, I wasn't a name. And, um, you pull out alive. We're, on, we're, in the, we're flying in an airplane. And she's pulling out alive. She's reading alive. And at one point, I was like, "You know, you're not allowed to read that on an airplane. That's just like that's, yes. that's a absolute cardinal yeah. rule, right? Right." And this, and I had literally written this story, but not remembering it was you. Right. And then I went. We didn't really meet. I, mean, yeah. I, was, I told you this later on. Yes. I, I actually was just reading that last night in the book. I was, yeah. reading, that, I was reading the Alive chapter. I, and it was, it was you yeah. who said that. Right. Oh, and Mary it was a very, it was a pivotal moment in my life because I was, I was going to, you know, I'd signed on to this movie. I was going to be living on a mountain mm-hmm. for four months, you know. <laughs> Eating human flesh. Yes. Yeah. I, that's, you know. You're a method the, actress. In you, those, you, yeah. you actually tasted some flesh. In sure. those days, we were dedicated. Right. Um, Great film, by the way. I'm a big fan of Alive. Thank you. you know, yeah, that I mean, plane crash is insane. I I believe it's the blade greatest uh, plane crash uh, ever filmed. Yeah, no, it's 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 heartbreaking. It took four weeks to wow. film that. Can you wow. imagine? I mean, they don't do that anymore. Literally four weeks. Right. Like just a, as an actor, you know. <laughs> no, I mean, well, no, because there's a plane crash sequence. Yeah. So like, ah, oh, yeah. oh. you know, these are the right. things you don't think about. Yeah. When you four different planes, one was on a hydraulic thing. Oh, it dropped wow. ten feet. I wrote about this experience. We were we were all strapped in, and Frank wanted to get genuine react. Frank Marshall, the director of Live, wanted to get genuine fear reaction. So we we got into this plane, and uh, it dropped ten feet in the air. And as it dropped, and we were all being filmed, uh, everybody went whoa. whoa! <laughs> Yeah, and we cost them. Right. <laughs> Which is why you shouldn't read it on an airplane. Yes, yeah. I don't know. It reminds me of John Waters, I think, in one of his books, talks about uh, when he gets on an airplane and he's sitting next to someone he doesn't want to talk to. He, put, he always carries a copy of a book called Lesbian Nuns. <laughs> it's a book about lesbian nuns. Just, you open lesbian nuns on an airplane and no one wants to talk to you. No one, no one will even look in your direction. But you're right. Alive would be a bad one. Yes. Um, so, Larry, we always start this show out with, because uh, I'm a huge believer in this, the wet cement theory sure. of, of seeing uh, the first movie. The What was the first movie you saw? I don't, took you to I'm it? not sure exactly. I remember the very first movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember uh, the first couple, perhaps, like. Planet of the Apes was early, really early on. Um, a movie called They Call Me Mr. Tibbs. The sequel yes. to the, Age of the Night was very early on. I, I was born in 1961, so I was like 9 or 10, like right at the beginning of sort of the, the 70s cinema. And mm-hmm. my parents got divorced at that time. And my dad had me one night a week, but he didn't know what to do with the kid. Mm. So he would, uh, I would convince him to take me to the drive-in, mm-hmm. and he'd take a he'd take a you know twelve pack of beer or something, and he would drink his beers and fall asleep. And for the next like five or six years of my life, I would see nothing but you know three films in a row that were completely inappropriate for a young person to see, which I think I think actually is completely appropriate. I yes, mean, I mean uh, um, you know, but that that time I was seeing things like. You know, uh, I saw Marlon Brando's Burn at a drive-in. I saw, you wow. know, Last House on the Left. I saw, I saw, you know, Joe. I saw all these <laughs> movies that that you would never, you know, you would never think. Oh, let's take a kid to see that. Um, uh, but that's where I got. That's where I learned my love of cinema. It's interesting. I because I wrote about drive-ins and my parents. Same thing. It was cheap entertainment. Right. Uh, you know, we were having this hippie commune. So you know, my dad <laughs> had a truck and put the mattress in the back, and all the hippies and all the kids, we'd be uh, in the back of the truck. And again, you it was like I described it as a kind of one long Altman movie. You'd sure. wait, he'd wake up and you'd see a little piece of Serpico and you fall asleep. Absolutely. And then you're on Patton. You know, yeah. you're like, what's happening? You know? And the um and the the triple bill were uh, completely random. Yeah. You know, it would be the sterile cuckoo next to, yes. you know, next to some horror film, <laughs> next to a kung fu movie, you know. It just happened to be whatever three prints they got. There they usually were some main feature that was kind of the newish movie, because drive-ins were kind of second run at that time. Yes. Uh, uh, but the other two films are completely random. And 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 so your dad did your dad like movies? Um, I think he liked movies. He didn't. I don't think he had a passion for it. My mm-hmm. mother had passion for the arts. Mm-hmm. I mean, my uh, my dad worked in a factory. My mom was a waitress. Uh, mm-hmm. It was a very working class uh, uh, group in Indiana. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my mom always had a you know always took me to theater. Always did was was you know pushed me in the arts a little bit. Uh, my dad I think was kind of indifferent. 
but you know, uh, you know, he was happy to. You know, he had me one night a week, so he was happy to take me somewhere. So when you were watching the movies, was there a certain point? I mean, I uh, the the first people that I just recognized for me personally, I always talk about this. Liza Minnelli and Richard Dreyfus were my go-to. Sure. Uh, Rich, I was obsessed with Richard Dreyfus. I wanted him to be my friend. Sure. You know? And again, I saw him in a drive-in. It was American Graffiti. Sure. I started to emulate and pick up, you know, be obnoxiously fun. And that was my, I was, you know, class clown. And I was, you know, consciously emulating Richard Dreyfus. And then in my heart, I thought I was Liza Minnelli. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to look at you. Is that like Liza, uh, Liza uh, Dreyfus? I, maybe that's kind of close. Yeah, maybe maybe not, still... not at all. But um, did you have people like, did you emulate or... Um, I emulated people more like I learned how to do the nunchucks because I was, I was, you know, I like Bruce Lee, you know, and I, and definitely, you know, uh, comedy, like, you know, uh, I got into the Marx Brothers really early on. Yeah. That was part of that early seventies Marx Brother revivalism where that, you know, they, uh, they sort of took over college campuses and things like this because, you know, I was kind of pushing my parents to take me to these movies all the time. I became a gigantic, it became an obsession for me. So I would Mm -hmm. seek out films at the time. And so like Groucho was a big person the time Woody Allen was a big person at that time but I, I you know I think that's when you first start seeing movies as a kid you identify with the actors in yes. a major way and I can remember the first time that I really put together that there's a mind behind the camera which for me was uh, the conversation uh, the Coppola movie where I was really affected by that movie I think it's 74 uh, and that's a dense film yes I mean for a kid yeah to... but uh, so I must have been 12 13 and and I remember just sitting there saying wow there there's somebody is someone's creating this yes it's more than just I didn't want to grow up to be Harry Caller or you know, or, <laughs> or, or, or John Gazelle in the movie but I, I you know I, at that point I said oh my god who who makes these movies did and started paying attention to that. I used to gravitate even towards the, uh, I think it's, uh, who's the character actor, Alan? Um, Garfield. Alan Garfield. Or Gorowitz, when he, when he changed for like that, the three or four years where he decided to use his actual real name. I, see, again, I think that it, why I would like somebody like Dreyfus and Jaws is I, mm. I could never dream, I wanted to be the star, you know, but I could never dream that right. be, dream big enough. So I would look at Alan right. Garfield and go, wow, if I could have Sure. Know, no, I was the same way because I started I started doing <laughs> acting in Indiana a bit, and I was on a, on a comedy show there. And uh, you know, uh, for Indiana, I was pretty good. When I came out to Los Angeles, I very quickly knew right away that I, at best, am the the next door neighbor. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> you know, who comes in to you know to to you know do straight lines for the for the other person? So, were you always did you did you have a bent towards writing or storytelling? Um. I was once one of those kids who was obsessed with film early on. It was really almost anything to do with film. And so um, I had a little Super 8 camera back in the day, and I would make these little movies. And um, I was very fortunate that in this town in Indiana, um, there was a, a television show called Beyond Our Control, which uh, was sort of produced and written and directed and acted by the local high school students. But it was actually on the NBC affiliate there. It was a half-hour show. It was kind of... Um, a Second City Saturday Night Live kind of thing, but it actually predates both those television shows. But it wow. went on for like 20 years, and I was a part of that, and that was very influential for me. And, and a lot of people came out of that. I mean, for the small town in Indiana, it's like Daniel Waters wrote Heathers and Batman Returns, Dean Norris from Breaking Bad, um, uh, you know, the woman who invented Blue's Clues. There's, there's people wow. like that. So the guy wrote Toy Story 2. So And so you were already learning, in a sense, yes. construction of I was story. learning how to, how to be professional. Because we'd write on Monday and Tuesday nights, we'd cast on Wednesday, we'd rewrite on Thursday, build sets on Friday night, film on Saturday, air on Sunday. And so I really almost feel like I didn't go to high school, even though I went to high school and no one was getting paid for this. Yes. Uh, that was, it was like if you had a, if you, if you were, there were people who go to some school that had the greatest theater department in the world. And so they lived their entire high school yes. career in their theater department. I lived through this television show. That's so interesting. I had a similar uh, kind of a thing. Again, nobody asked me to, but I w- w- saw movies and then had the kind of understanding. My grandfather was in the movies right. and then he... Once I visited, I visited him on this film set. Being there, I became the official uh, high school uh, film reviewer, even though nobody right. asked me to do that. Yeah. I, so I would talk to teachers about their opinions. That's funny. I was, I was a film critic for a brief period too, <laughs> back in Indiana. Because once I graduated from high school, I couldn't. Um, 
uh, I actually wasn't going to college. I mean, I'm the first person in my family to go to college, you know, so I took what's now called a gap year. When I was growing up, it was called not going to college. Yes. Um, and uh, <laughs> uh, so in, in that gap year, I convinced the, the television station that was doing that comedy show to let me be the film critic on the nightly news. So uh-huh. I did like movie reviews for uh, like in 79 and 80. So we were talking about the 70s and what, you know, everybody has an opinion about the sweet spot of 70s films. Uh, I just recently saw Joe because we Mm -hmm. had, uh, you know, it's an incredible film, very dark. Uh, But what is it about the 70s films and filmmakers? There was sort of a a huge uh, freedom that was Mm -hmm. given American cinema at that time. A lot of it comes from the ratings board. A lot of it comes from the just the the zeitgeist of the, of the of America at that time, and so um, you know there was a whole there was basically challenging cinema was actually the same as commercial cinema, mm-hmm. you know, which is almost never happens where where you were actually going to uh, you know see uh, movies because of the filmmakers, not necessarily the stars. You know, people like you know from Scorsese to Altman to you know Coppola the people who were still almost still names today to be quite honest uh um you know there's just, the films were consistently challenging and they were darker and uh it's so funny cuz I show my my kids these movies all the time and they always die at the end. <laughs> I think that people were so so free that they didn't have to. People didn't have to win always. Yeah. And so there, there's these dark, these dark, dark endings that are just uh, kind of amazing. And it's funny. Uh, I brought my kids. My kids are now, you know, twenty, twenty three, and almost twenty one now. Uh, but um, I was a big proponent in showing them. I call. I said age inappropriate material because. There's a there's a, a a thing I think that happens now because there's so many channels on television mm-hmm. that kids now only watch things that are aimed directly at them at all times. Where I grew up in an era where there was there were only three networks, right. and so you you had to watch what was ever on. So right. you learned sort of like you'd watch an episode of Mannix, and it was not aimed at you, and you had no idea what was going on. But then, oh, what the hell was that? And so you'd pay attention, and you learned that you learned that sometimes. You know, uh, sometimes paying attention and watching something that isn't aimed at you can pay off. That's a, you know, that's a great theory. And I, I would even say, because we, I only had one channel. I grew up in the country and then I'd go visit my relatives in right. Queens and I, I would freak out because <laughs> I thought that's what TV sure. was, the untouchables and, you know, Burke's Law, watching it with my grandparents. But the, even the children, the, we, the, we would have the Children's Film Festival uh, show, which sure. was Saturdays. And we saw some, I remember seeing, you know, some very dark, uh, films, sure. you know, so there wasn't like you were talking about age appropriate. Uh, so- I remember actually, it was funny uh, talking about uh, <laughs> television. Uh, I remember seeing Joe, you brought up Joe. Yeah. I brought up Joe first, I think, but the uh, um, it was back before cable. And I live in South Bend, Indiana, which is about an hour and a half out of Chicago. And for some reason, one of the Chicago stations were running Joe really early on after its run, like in 74 or something like that. And, but the only way I could get the channel is if I was actually standing at the television holding the rabbit ears. Yes. So I had to like I had to actually be part of the antenna <laughs> to watch it, you know. Oh, uh, that's such a great uh, I love that. See, I love those experiences when you I I I used to watch Dick Cavett that way and uh you know, I, mm-hmm. I, I, I the only way it would work was on my mom's little portable television that's what I had, yeah. in her bedroom in the hall halfway in the hall between the you know the bathroom and her room and then i would have to hold again i would have to tilt it and then sometimes it would sure. it would go out the translate to your younger people it's almost like your cell phone when you go to someone's house and it doesn't work so you have to go walk outside in the middle of the street trying to find where you can get the three bars that was kind of the way you had to watch tv and then if you had that experience like i have uh, you know, obviously, when you work with these people, uh, to me, I, I call it, you know, they're they're the people that were on my bedroom wall. Yes. Or I, I I almost can't. Yeah, I can't take it. You know, I'm going to uh, I'm going to interview Dick Cavett in a couple of weeks for uh, Turner Classic Movies. Right. And it's almost like, no, I can't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it, it, be cool. Be cool. Be cool. <laughs> you know, they pe- yeah. they they don't understand the meaning that they have for you. Uh, especially for me, just because it was it was just my it was my sure. my bloodline sure. to their an outside world. Right. Did you have that experience? With- oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, probably the the best example of that is uh, is I made two movies with Milos Forman, mm-hmm. and you know, growing up in the seventies and the impact that, that One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest had for me at that time was gigantic. And 
um, uh, you know, and so to be able to actually make movies with him, to be in the trenches with him was really, you know, what an experience. What is he, did he have any insights about, uh, about Cuckoo's Nest? Because it is, it's such a, that whole period for Jack Nicholson. Yeah. Is it's incredible. Kind of perfect, yeah. Last detail, yeah. Hal Ashby. Oh, there's a lot of my favorite filmmakers yeah. come out of the 70s. Well, no, uh, what I really got out of working with Milos was just that he, um, you know, he really believes in naturalism. He really believes in just, you know, how would people really, really be in that period? He wouldn't, he's not really, he's not one of those filmmakers who's constantly moving the camera, thinking like that. He's really thinking about, he's really thinking about the performances and the, and the real people. And so, you know, he often will cast a, you know, and Larry Flint, for example, he'd cast a, you know, a judge to play a judge. You know, he, he's more about getting, you know, he, he, he tries to cast so perfectly that he says, even if they made mistakes, they're making the mistakes in character. And he's looking for that, uh, those sort of unrepeatable moments that life brings you that, that film doesn't, that, that, you know, it isn't just uh, people reciting lines. It's not, mm-hmm. it's not theater. Another thing that I love about 70s films, it sounds like it's a little thing, uh, but for me it's a big thing, is that people are talking and planes go by and uh, somebody honks their horn during – they're saying something very important and they sit at a leather booth and it squeaks and it's – that was just part of the mood. They're taking a bath and you hear the water splashing and I don't know if it's just because my ear has been so trained, but I find it – very difficult sometimes to watch movies and everyone looks so clean. Sure. Everyone's very pristine. The sound is pristine. Is that something you ever... No, I agree with you 100%. Uh, that's why I tend to sort of like you know, lower budget movies now. You know, I'll go to like mumblecore films or that kind of thing, mm-hmm. which ha- has that feeling now. You know, that sort of uh, uh, that sort of sense of just being shot by people who really care about what they're doing. Uh, but trying to present a slice of life on on film, um, yeah, because studio movies just feel incredibly clean. I mean, they're you know the superhero stuff particularly. It's just you know it's not it's not of this it's not of this earth. Literary. Yeah, you know? I get my, my my eye is so trained in these seventies films that they're shooting on location, and you can see movie posters sure. in the background. Well, that, 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 that kills me when I see a movie poster in the back. Two things that like make me stop <laughs> you know, in a theater or watching something on TV is when either they pass a marquee or they pass, they pass a movie theater. I'm like, what poster? What, 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 was, what was there? Or if it's a movie that's shot in Los Angeles and they're driving a car and I'm always like, where are they? Where are they? Oh, that's Crescent Heights and Sunset. Oh my God. You know, Jack Lemmon just picked up the hitchhiker. It's Crescent Heights and Sunset or something. Oh, that's one of my favorite things. I, I, I you know, when I would watch movies, I would make a point. Yeah, to, you know, that was the best thing when the VHS came in. You could actually stop the film and and see where they, you know, and see where they were uh, shooting. And do you have any favorite films from the 70s that you want to recommend for people? Um, Filmmakers? You know, uh, uh, let's see, things that might be off the beaten track a little bit. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned uh, American Graffiti, which was a big film for me, but actually probably a movie that's very similar to that, that uh, I have a great deal of affection for, is a movie called Cooley High, which was sort uh, of the uh, uh, American uh, uh, American International Pictures made kind of the black ripoff of, uh-huh. of, uh, of American Graffiti. And it's, uh, it took place in Chicago, and... Um, uh, and it's got amazing performances by uh, Glenn Turman is un- unbelievable in the film and directed by Michael Schultz. And it's just a, a really yes. great, terrific movie. And um, it's actually one of those things where I, I, I prefer it to American Graffiti, but not, not necessarily maybe for the filmmaking or whatever. But it's like when I saw it as a, as a youth, it reflected my life more than, say, the California car culture. Right. I understood sort of the Chicago streets better than I understood the California car culture. Uh, a movie that I love is uh, I'm going to pull out two. One's pretty popular, Harry and Tonto, which is the um, Paul Mazursky yep. film. Uh, yep. It just kills me, and it's of all the road trip movies. Uh, that's my yeah. That's for me. That's my go to road trip movie. And another movie I I really really love is uh, Cinderella Liberty mm-hmm. with James Caan. Mm-hmm. I don't know Marcia what it, Mason. And and I love and I'm a yeah. huge Marsha Mason fan, but there's something about that film. Uh, he James Con plays a sailor who falls in love with a kind of a she's not really a prostitute, but she's sort of a bar floozy, right. and she's got a African American son. She doesn't know who the father is, and again, there's just a a casualness about there. Nothing is, you know, a big square. Right. 
Uh, What's interesting about that movie, and I brought up Marsha Mason because I think I think she was nominated for an Oscar for that movie, is that she's so great in that film, and she winds up marrying Neil Simon. I think they were married, mm-hmm. um, and she winds up doing almost nothing but Neil Simon stuff from from like a few years on uh, for the next ten years, and it's a totally different kind of performance than what she gives in in Cinderella Liberty, which is like you were talking before. It has that naturalism. She plays a girl in the streets, and in those in those Neil Simon movies, she's just you know rattling off jokes and and doing her things. They're very good performances, but it's interesting to see how that the, the marriage changes the arc of that person's career. So how do you think, and I want to get into, obviously... Back to Harry and Tonto for one second. What's yeah. amazing about that movie, that movie sure. was rated R, which is crazy. <laughs> it was? Yes. What? Uh, can I cuss on the show? Yeah, sure, can. yeah. Um, and it. they may have changed it in the in the actual version you can get now. Um, uh, I think it's Josh Mostel. Is Josh Mostel in that film? Yes. yes. He, he, uh, he calls, I think, Ellen Burstyn a cunt. Ah. And it was uh, the C word got uh, got an instant R, and Mazursky wouldn't change it. But like ten years later, for the for the for the home video release, I think he they, they looped it to bitch, and so now it's now it's because there's no reason. It's a nice movie about a guy and a cat traveling across country, and there's no reason why it you know it can't be, be seen rated. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, shout out to Michael Schultz. We should have him come on. Though. Yes, That's absolutely. Great guy. Great guy. Yes. Um, also directed one of my favorite movies of the '80s, which is uh, called The Last Dragon. Which is a oh. an insane movie. Um, uh, uh, kind of takes place in a kung fu movie theater, and uh, it's it's almost like a Rocky Horror Picture Show for for kung fu movies. It's, oh, fantastic! It's a great film. I, I did. A, I, I do often do movies um, at the American Cinematheque. I'll right. have a I'll have a bring down a guest and show two films, and I uh, showed Cooley High and and Last Dragon. Brought down Michael Schultz. Oh, fantastic! Yeah, he's a great guy. Great guy. Um, you are a Golden Globe and Emmy winner. Yes, I correct? am. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit. Can we talk about your writing process? Um, Ileana, you were particularly fascinated with uh, the biopic and yes. you know, how how your process has kind of like turned it. Can right. can you talk about that? A um, reworking of yeah. the of the biopic. Uh, I have a writing partner. My writing partner is Scott Alexander, and uh, you know we've. Uh, you know, I don't know if it was it was on purpose, but we mm. when we started our writing career, we were sort of writing studio comedies, problem child, problem child, exactly, as uh, as featured in. It's the other thing we have in right. common, Cape as, Fear. as featured in Cape Fear, specifically oh. chosen by Martin Scorsese. Please tell me a little bit before I get into my thing. Tell me yes, a little because dude. it's always been the, the our gigantic curiosity. Is because at that time in our career we were the shitty guys who wrote Problem Child, and so the only thing we had going for us is for some reason Scorsese uses it, and and the movie I mean Cape Fear shuts down for like 30, 40 seconds, and you just watch Problem Child, and Max Cady laughs his head off at it. So for us, it was a, some kind of sign of like, oh yay, maybe you know Scorsese at least saw it. Well, <laughs> and here's the thing about you know Martin Scorsese. Yes, you can be nothing is ever accidental. In, in a frame of right. his film. Sure. You know what I mean? If he l- looks at your shoes, he's, oh, we gotta start on the shoes and right. come up, you know? So I remember, yes, when we were doing the movie, and it had to be a universal film, right? That, because it was a universal movie. And he, <laughs> and he very specifically, you know, with great seriousness, <laughs> went through right. a thought process of right. what film Max Cady. Would be, uh, yeah. you know, would be watching. Sure, he, that what movie that Max Cady and Juliet Lewis would probably both <laughs> yeah. both be at. And the idea that Bob would be laughing, you know, hysterically, yeah. r- truthfully, not fake laughing at watching this this film. But again, but no, Marty thought it was a very funny premise and very funny. You know, do you remember the brief thing of Marty I, uh, in uh, the King of Comedy where Tony Randall is talking about the je- the monologue yes, yes. and he's going, "It's not, it's not funny." And it cuts to Marty. He goes, "I think it's very funny, it's very funny." <laughs> that, I, that to me is all that, I, that he's not the person in. The back of the cab and That's taxi driver. Yeah. He's the person who who's, <laughs> he's got an amazing sense of humor and very funny. And and was the person in the back of the cab of taxi driver probably likes Problem Child too. The- yes, <laughs> <laughs> but, but yes, very very specifically picked uh, Problem Child. Wow. Which is um, yeah. So anyway, back to yes. your question. <laughs> yes, which was uh, um, we would we found ourselves in this weird career thing where we'd come in to pitch a movie and people would go. Oh wow, that's a great idea for a movie, but 
you guys are the guys who wrote Problem Child. <laughs> it's like, you know, you maybe, you know, I, it, we were sort of being told we weren't good enough to write our own ideas, which was really kind of scary and freaky. Wow. So um, uh, we decided, even even though the Problem Child was a big hit, uh, we weren't that proud of the movie. But with it was sequels. A big hit. Yeah, with sequels. Um, we sort of said, maybe, maybe we didn't start our career the right way. Let's kind of... Let's go regroup. back and regroup and, and try to write something just for from the heart. And we wound up writing Ed Wood uh, because uh, uh, we were kind of obsessed with Ed Wood when we were in college. And um, we um, uh, this actually touches upon something I think you guys were talking about earlier. Uh, we decided we were going to take a different view of Ed Wood because at that time Ed Wood was just a source of ridicule. Mm, and you know people would go to those movie festivals to make fun of them they're bad movie festivals it was like the worst movie director of all time and after our problem child experience we sort of said what if you look at him sympathetically because nobody nobody sets off to make something bad ed ed was actually just trying to make the movies he wanted to see they didn't turn out that well but ed believed in them and so what if we what if we concentrated more on his passion and more on his like belief and my god he you know a lot of people come out to hollywood and don't get any films made he he made a series of films and he gave all these people in his life a sense of purpose and and particularly the you know a dying bella gosi uh, some place to go and believe in themselves again and so we wrote it as kind of a love story between ed and bella and and really kind of presented reframed it as a story of a of a, of a very passionate person and um, and that movie came out and it won a couple Academy Awards and uh, it really re- redefined us in a bit. But because of our problem child experience, because of being, because of being typecast before, we realized that we probably would have another. You know, we were like, oh my god, this genre we can kind of be typecast in, in the sense that um, uh, we knew we could maybe get at least one more weird biopic kind of made. And we thought biopics were one of the things that that. Was a genre that that doesn't get redefined very often. It was off. It was they're really kind of boring yeah. and and terrible. Usually, they're usually those sort of Oscar bait, three hour cradle to the grave things. Yeah. And we thought, you know, if we came in there with a different attitude, we could kick its ass a bit. And so that's how the People versus Larry Flint happened. Was it hard to convince studios that you were going <clears throat> to look at them in a different way? Well, it was weird. Um, it's funny, when Scott and I write conventional scripts, we have trouble getting them made. When we write these really unconventional things, we've actually had quite a deal, quite a, quite, uh, quite a big success with them. So uh, I remember telling one of my friends that we were going to go out on a pitch with, about the man who publishes Husser magazine, and they just thought, you guys are insane. How can you do this? And, um, uh, you know, this, 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 uh, that, that time it was, it was Columbia Pictures, and they, they just, they, they got what we were trying to do. They were, they, uh, Columbia Pictures is where Frank Capra made all his movies in the 30s. And and I remember one of the executives saying, you know, we always have these meetings and, like, how can we make a Frank Capra movie for today? And you guys just came and pitched a Frank Capra movie with pornography. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, yes, we did, as a matter of fact. That's exactly what it is. It's a story about the little guy taking on the, taking on the government, taking on the society, and, 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 and winning. So, uh, so, you know... What what made us happy to sort of stay in that the the biopic genre, which is we sort of turn it we call the anti biopic, sort of the biopics of people who who before us kind of would never be thought of to to mm-hmm. be substantial enough to make their own films. You know, before it'd be it was Gandhi, it was Patton, it was you know it was that kind of thing, Lawrence of Arabia, uh, and so we were sort of uh, able to take a look at this thing and say no no no, it's sort of the fringe pop culture elements of. Of my life, the people that I love to talk about, the people that I'm sure you guys talk about in, the, in your podcast, yes, um, those people have uh, have interesting stories too. Well, and that's one of your maxims, Ileana, is everyone's life is Correct. like a movie. We all have, you know, these these monumental moments, these first act breaks. You know, we have yeah. the Dark Knight of the Soul. We all do. Yes, we yep. do. I, I well, you know, Ed Wood is one of my favorite films. I love the film because it really, again, just demonstrates. Uh, you know, people's passion for film, what they're willing to do to make a movie. And there's some crazy drive that we all have. And I think that that's the, that that's what the movie really expresses. And the other, sorry. Yeah, no, no, it's interesting because, uh, um, my writing partner, Scott Alexander, uh, worked on a bunch of like low budget horror movies in the Uh eighties. And, um, you know, when you're making those movies, no one's getting paid. 
Yeah. They're there they're there just because oh my god, they they love movies and there's they want to be a part of it and they oh you're shooting in 35. Oh yes. my gosh. And so you are literally, you know, you, your boom mic is a is a broom with a microphone <laughs> yes. on it. And so as you think but the people are there with such great intentions. They were there because they love movies and they yes. want to make movies and be a part of movies and and they're willing to work for free. They're willing to work, you know, 20 hour days. They're willing to, you know, do whatever it takes. And so we actually took that kind of experience and put it in that then into ed wood i yeah i agree and they're uh one of the scenes that i think of mentally uh which is one of my favorite things when you're on a film set and you think of a, a movie ab- mm-hmm. about movies because uh, i love movies about movies but the scene with bella lugosi where he has to get into the uh the cult, the and fight right with, with the octopus <laughs> in the water it's such a anyone who's an actor hmm. Like, uh, you know, we've at three o'clock in the morning and you're like, uh, I did a shark. I did one of those shark movies, oh, you know, Sharknado things. <laughs> no, it wasn't no. even good enough. It was below. <laughs> no, it wasn't even. Yes. Forgive me, Sci-Fi Network. Right. But I want, but I love show right. business. I'm a student of show business. I want to do, the only thing I've never done is a soap opera. I've mm-hmm. always, I want to experience everything in, in uh, show business. So I, I got offered this crazy a shark movie. I said, I'm going to do it. It was beneath a Sharknado. <laughs> I couldn't even understand the script. It didn't even matter. And I remember at one point saying to the director something about, I said, now, I said, you know, it's four o'clock and we still have like eight pages. Are we going to be mm-hmm. shooting this tonight? Or, and he goes, oh, hon, we're done. And it was just like, that's, that's what he meant. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, we're like, we don't get to it today. It's no. not going to be. Oh, in that's the, hysterical. It's wow. not going to be in the movie. Wow. So uh, yeah, well, it's interesting. I'm glad you brought up the Bela Lugosi in the water scene. Oh, it's one of our uh, one of our favorite scenes as well. And uh, just to show you a little bit of our writing process is yes. that um, uh, you know we 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 outline kind of meticulously. We do a lot of research on these real life people, um, but there a lot of times there's information we'd like to get in the movie. That doesn't have a card or doesn't have doesn't have a scene, and uh, we call them like fun facts or whatever. And we just keep a list on all the various characters. And there was the fact that Bela Lugosi turned down Frankenstein after mm-hmm. Dracula. He was offered Frankenstein and turned it down because Frankenstein didn't talk, and it was like, why am I just going to be this grunting monster? I'm Dracula. Uh, and so we're writing the script, and every every two or three scenes, someone, we'd be like, all right, what should Bella say? Uh, hey, can you do that? No, he can't talk about Frankenstein here. It doesn't make sense. So we're writing that scene where he's, he's Ed's filming all night long. Bella's shooting up in the car. Ed gets him to come out, and he's supposed to uh, battle this octopus in, the, in this cold lake. And we were like, he talks about turning down Frankenstein. And so that became the whole, the, the idea of like, you know, I turned down Frankenstein. You know, and here I am now. So and it, gave, it gives that scene a whole flavor that it wouldn't have. It was just we're making fun of the fact that Bella's got to do an octopus. Oh, I've and I've uh, in my career I've shot scenes, you know, with people. I remember doing a movie and there was a woman who was uh, going to be an extra in the scene, and we were had to run through her house in mm-hmm. the middle of this fight scene, and that woman was Carol Lindley. Oh wow. And it's gut wrenching mm. for somebody like me that loves movies, and nobody knew who she was. Mm. Uh, and she was only doing it to because she was trying to get her insurance because right. she didn't have it, you know. And it's right. people don't understand the sacrifices well, that you make to that, be in films. Yeah. That's why um, Tim cast Martin because Martin Martin was actually on a on a big upswing at that point. But you know, Tim was like he's worked with Hitchcock, he was in the actor studio, but he also did like you know Harlem Globetrotters meet Gilligan you know, Gilligan's Island. So his guys had like weird, you know, he knows the bottom rungs of show business, he knows the top rungs of show business and and he thought that Martin could bring that to uh, to the Bella Lugosi part. Yes, he did. He did. So uh, in talking about the bio uh, about the biopic, mm-hmm. uh you were talking so let's go talk a little again about your process. You do a ton of re- – that's what I read. You do yeah. like a ton of research yeah. and then now you have to Would narrow it into exactly. a kind of a three-act structure. Well, or? that also – yeah, definitely a three-act structure. We sort of believe uh, uh, that you know you can do un- – sort of you can do unconventional material – in a more conventional kind of way, it's, mm-hmm. uh, that that's strange enough. I think that's uh, why we've been able to get things through the studio system. Is that we've, uh, um, yeah, like I said, we've had 
strange stories, but told in a way that, like, oh, the studio executives reading it say, oh, page 10, that happens, or, you know, <laughs> end of the first act, that's there. You know, they, they, uh, we sort of try to play by their rules, but with our content. And, and uh, all I really care about is the content, to be quite honest. So when you say, I mean, we all hear this phrase, uh, uh, three act structure. Right. Can you just break it down a little bit for people that don't? kind of understand the mis- mysterious I mean there's all kinds why of screenwriting it's so it is it is uh um <laughs> you know uh I certainly believed in it a lot more I think in my in in my youth uh but um uh I maybe it's cuz I'm uh, you know I did TV this year and so now I had I had to do 10 hours which is a totally different yeah. different aspect people entirely versus, people versus OJ Simpson Correct thank yeah. you um and so that really that that sort of like opens up a different possibility for for, for screenwriting, a, a bigger canvas. Um, you know, three-act structure sort of is, you know, that, that kind of, simply put, beginning, middle, and end, but they have a certain point that they're sort of, you're sort of, uh, you know, an inciting incident. You're sort of, you're sort of building the story to, you know, what it's really about. And then, you know, uh, the middle section is, is all the different complications and it leads to a, to a, you know, a very bad thing that sets them off on a, on a sort of a journey of self-discovery of some kind. Do you ever have a, a, a thought that does, has anything ever changed for you? Like you start out thinking it's about one thing and then come to a different, uh, idea about it, or you're always pretty sure. I think we're pretty sure the story before we start. I mean, there's certainly things that, that bubble up. Um, uh, in the People vs. OJ, for example, um, uh, you know the Robert Kardashian character, yes. um, is not that prominent in most of the books written at the time period because Robert Kardashian was the unfamous person, uh, as part of the Dream Team, um, and so you know in all the accounts he's not given that much to do. And but the more we looked at him, and and obviously uh, taking in the, in the into our mind the the success his daughters have at this later date, uh, we could see that he was the only person at the OJ trial who was there for the right reason. He was there because OJ was his friend, and OJ looked yeah. at him and said, "I didn't do it." And yet, if you if you if you do just some research, you realize that at a certain point, Kardashian had real doubts about his friend, you know, because he was friends with Nicole as well. And so yes. that was one of those things where I, that was actually during the writing that that really came up. And particularly after we cast David Schwimmer, it was like, let's give him something to do. Let's give, you know, and so those that that, that a lot of that stuff, a lot of that heart stuff in the OJ show came did, later. Did you have any uh, concern about uh, casting David Schwimmer? Because he came ha- had a kind of comedy background. Um, I, think, I thought he did an amazing yeah, job. I would. I never have a concern about a comedian doing a straight part. Mm-hmm. I because comedians are the best actors around. They know they know more about timing and more. I think com- comedians can do drama much better than dr- dramatic actors can do comedy. I. Uh, um, you know, if you uh, Alexander Payne is a big believer in this. If you ever watch an Alexander Payne movie? All the smaller parts are done usually by comics or comedic actors because he he knows that they know they know how to like let's put a button on this or whatever. Oh, you know, they know, yeah. well, they know how to do it. I'm obsessed with small. As you know, we started the show. I'm obsessed with all the small characters because sometimes one person having one line can yeah. ruin a scene if, if if you you know get them from uh, central casting. So one of the things I read about uh, the People versus O.J. Simpson is that each, uh, which I thought was extraordinary, I was glu- you know oh, thank you just glued to uh because it's not again having having been involved in many uh procedural courtroom television Mm. shows it's death it's the (laughs) it's just for anyone out there it is the most boring hard thing to shoot because you shoot everything one way and then you shoot everything this way and Mm. then you turn around and you shoot the judge and scenes can take you can you can have sixteen hour days oh, just yeah. doing the same thing again and again and again, and it's it's boring, you know. And so I think that the concentration on the characters, the personalities of these characters, the way it was shot mm-hmm. with zoom ins, and you could see what the person was thinking. I, I just I was I was glued to it. I mean, I think a lot of people were expecting a courtroom drama, which it certainly is, but there you know they don't we, we don't even start the trial to the fifth episode or something. So there was, you know, it's, it's, it, we were never trying to just simply recreate the, you know, what happened in the courtroom. We were, we were trying to show you things you maybe didn't know or show you different aspects or show you, certainly show you 
different uh, try to let you have some kind of sympathy for almost every person there. They were all there for different reasons, but they try to get inside their heads and show show what they were going through. I, we were very happy that that uh, you know time and time again someone would come up and say, "I always hated Johnny Cochran, but I understood him after this." Or I always hated Marsha Clark, but I you know I didn't know what she was going through. Or Chris Darden was I I, I you know the same you know. So we sort of were able to take these these characters uh, or real people uh, uh, and, and maybe give them their dignity back. Another thing I thought was extraordinary about the film is it's very hard to play something where you know the outcome. Right. And make it still be dramatic and interesting right. and compelling, right? That's yeah. the inherent problem. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it sounded like more of a problem than it actually was in that, um, uh, first of all, because we were able to, I think, put in so much stuff you didn't know. Um, I actually, uh, you know, this is my first television thing I've ever done, and so I didn't know, you know, when you have a movie opening, you go, you, you know, get all your friends and you go opening night, and so I thought like, <laughs> oh, you know, every every week I'll have some friends over and we'll watch the episode, and I stopped that after week like three, I think, because it just was that really happened, man. <laughs> what what did they then 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 really you made that up, right? And so I was, I was having to do this like sort of uh, commentary track over the entire thing. Yes, it really happened. Okay, yeah, we did, you know, and so. Um, uh, we were always trying to find a different way to look, you know, show you something you didn't quite know. Uh, um, but it was interesting. We were always worried about the last episode, the verdict, because people knew the verdict and how could that not be just an anic, uh, you know, anticlimax. Uh, but what we found was it was more like United 93, where because you knew some of the things were going to happen it actually just put a gigantic knot in your stomach and you just yes. you're about ready to vomit the entire time as you're watching so i think a lot of times uh having people know the at least the rough outlines of of history helped us be able to tell the story you know quicker cleaner and and go more for character rather than plot uh, another, uh, again, pivotal little tiny moment, but that was brilliant. See, it's the concentration on the small details when, uh, you know, Marsha Clark gets gets her perm. Sure. It's just brilliant. Yeah. Um, and again, when you wrote the script, was that something? Oh, absolutely. The I focus mean, on that. Oh, absolutely. why no. it's important. Well, because uh, certainly having the, um, you know, 20 years go by, you're able to read all this material and, and just look at it differently. And, and one of the things that just kept on popping out to us was how Marsha Clark was treated differently as a, as a woman on this case. And um, uh, so really early on, Scott and I decided that one of the episodes we'd call Marsha, 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 and it would be, um, you know, just almost concentrating on her dilemma. Uh, and it was so interesting to have it happen, come out the same year that Hillary's running for president, and I felt like the parallels were oh. quite obvious. Just like, yeah. you know, just that being held to a completely different standard. No one, no one, you know, no one was talking about, you know, Effie Bailey's haircut, you know, or how, yeah. how frumpy he right. looked. They, but they were talk, constantly, you know, you know, critiquing Marsha for what she was wearing. It's like Hillary's pantsuits. And uh, and working with Cuba Gooding Jr. too, which which again yeah. you have a performance that uh, you know Andy Griffith when he did a fa- after he did the Face in the Crowd. Right. Did you ever hear him interviewed? Say he goes, I never want to do anything like that again. <laughs> it's so it so disturbed him. It's a, I mean that first of all he's amazing in that movie. He's amazing in Face in the Crowd, and it is funny how just like. He went. He just became Andy Griffith. He became the nicest man yeah, on earth. Because he said it was too. It was too upsetting. Yeah, it was right. too disturbing for him. And wow. I wonder, you know, when I looked at uh, watching. I mean, he was in the zone. He just yeah. was. Well, we were so lucky. All those actors. You know, everybody was yeah. in the zone. Again, yeah. it's it's. You talk it, about you know. So you talk about like you know your your little character actors that you love. I mean, for me, the one of the greatest joys on it was. Uh, having uh robert morse bobby oh. morse play uh, dominic dunn oh, right. and so it's just like you know ha- the, to be able to hang out with bobby and 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 you know just, and what's 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 funny about like a character like that is and you're an actress you, you'll you'll get this is you know everyone was excited about being a part of this project and they would all they all want to be members of the dream team or be like dominic dunn <laughs> in the thing but what they didn't quite think through was that they would have to sit in the courtroom 
while Johnny and Marsha give speeches. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yes, those first couple episodes, you've got a lot of lines, and you're this and this, yeah. but at a certain point, you're just a, you're just a thing. And so the, all these big actors, uh, you know, had to fight the, the fact that they were like, oh, I'm an extra here. Yes. You know, and right. so uh, they were really good about it for the first bunch of weeks, and then there was a little bit of a revolt, and we had to sort of figure out, like, all right, we have to, you know, we'll stagger them. You know, you, you get Monday and Tuesdays, you come in these other days, and so, but, but, Robert Morse is amazing. Robert Morse was like, I'll, I'll be there every single day. Mm. I don't have to give me lines. I'm going to be there. I'm going to sit next to uh, to the Goldmans. I'm going to take my notes. I'm going to be my character, and I'm going to be Dominic Dunn. So he was, you know, he's there all the time. Uh, he was incredible. So now let's talk about uh, the other uh, biopic. Now I'm, I'm just realizing, are you the only uh, writer who has two films called The People, People versus? Yeah, I know. Yeah. It's crazy. Set yeah. Up. People versus problem child. <laughs> people, uh, yeah. Doctor Kildare. You guys yeah. are the you're the people guys. The people guys. The people versus guys. Right. Well, um, it was one of those things where it was funny when we. Uh, um, it's kind of the co-title to Jeffrey Tubin's book that we based on. It's called The Run of Your Life: The People versus O.J. Simpson, and um, uh, it was never our intention to call really to, to just sort of rip off our earlier title, but um, uh, it just felt it felt right. Yes. So we did it, and you know. So I'm quite happy. Well, um, what are you working on now? Uh, we're actually adapting uh, Jeffrey Tubin's next book, new, a new book uh, about Patty Hearst. Oh, we're doing right, that as a film. Right. So we're uh, we're just about to turn that in right now. Any insights on that? That's for our next podcast. Oh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like that. A lot of times you wind up talking about things, and you're like, oh, well, you know. And then four years later, when it actually comes out, you don't have anything to say. Uh, the so. the uh, couple just last the last question I want to ask you is just because we didn't talk about it all. Just the the partnership uh, aspect of writing, and yes. and what that yeah. feels like. Yes, I always thought, my goodness, that would be an amazing. I mean, I would love that. Was my fantasy to look Billy Wilder, Charles sure. Brackett, sure. Uh, you know, we, we've always done it that way, and I, like I mentioned before, I grew up on this sketch comedy show, and so I was used to writing in a room with other people, and uh, Scott and I were roommates at USC, and we wrote a script our senior year that managed to sell a few weeks after we graduated, and so we, I don't think we ever thought of ourselves as going to be lifelong partners, but we kept on, it, it, the, I think it works, and I think we, we really bring, each bring something else to the table, and uh, it's a nice yin-yang thing, and... Um, uh, you know, uh, we work in the room together. It's not like you take the first act, I take the second act, and I'll yeah. see you in April. Right. We battle over every line, and we talk back and forth, and he sits at the computer, and I, I pace. You're the pacer. I'm the pacer, yeah. or Scott would say he's, he's on the couch. Like, <laughs> don't lie to them. You don't pace. You sleep. How much do you write a day? Do you, have uh, a... you mean time-wise or yeah. page length? Page length, you never know. Uh, three words yeah, three Exactly. Three words at 5.30. Yeah. Um, uh, we tend to write, uh, we have a kind of a, uh, a weird hours where it's like 11.30 to 6.30 or 11.30 to 7, something like mm-hmm. that. Sort of, sort of uh, not traffic hours in Los Angeles. And so it allows us to have a little bit of morning. We, you know, I think it, it, maybe it'll change eventually, but it was when we, you know, we had kids. You know, you could take the kid to school. You could do all that kind of stuff and then go to work and then work and then come home and have dinner at the same time. Uh, and then the last question, too, I want to because I'm so – so many things I want to ask. But two projects that I heard you were working on, you mentioned before, the Marx Brothers, mm-hmm. also a Monkeys project. That's right. There, uh, the monkeys thing hasn't quite been announced, so I probably can't talk too much about that. But uh, the Marsh Brothers was uh, Scott and I was Scott was also a little kid who loved the Marsh Brothers, and we wrote a, a, a kind of a, a big epic Marsh Brothers script uh, for Universal in the uh, in like, like ten years or so, ten years ago. Um, that's no longer in development. That sort of strange enough. That it's is like um, yeah, it's too bad. It, uh, the um, like I was saying before, we write sort of anti great man. Marsh Brothers is probably the first great man story that we wrote, where it's like these people do deserve a biopic, and so you know it was. But it's 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 a very good script, but you know you got five brothers, you got Minnie, you've got a lot. You know, it was one of those things where it was never. There's not really a cheap version of it. It's sort of I wouldn't call it Gangs of New York like, but in right. a sense that they're always on a train going to another vaudeville place, going oh, to this place. So there's there's a lot of theaters. There's a lot of you know. It's it's uh. 
It's one of my sweet spots is, um, again, movies about vaudeville. My uh, grandfather was in something. They were called the Jesse Bonestell Players. You can Google them. But Gail Sondergaard was in the group and Ralph Bellamy. Wow. I'll give one plug for one of my favorite movies that no one ever talks about about anymore. Sure. Bob Hope film called The Seven Little Foys. Oh, the, gr- the, the greatest. The, the, yeah. seven, seven little the Seven Little Foys. The greatest. About, oh, right, about Eddie right, Foy. Right. The greatest. Yeah. I send the scene with him and Jimmy Cagney yeah. dancing on the yeah. table. D- d- Jimmy Cagney playing George M. Cohen. I, I send that YouTube thing to people because I say this is, sh- this is the essence for right. me, if you can distill show business. The joy, the just the simple joy. Yeah. Remember in movie in the old days, like Bob Hope would come on, and as soon as they do the soft shoe, everybody would applaud. <laughs> it was like an instant. Yeah. <sighs> so, you know, uh, we're all united. Yes. I don't know if we have that anymore. Well, anyway, Larry, thank you so much. Thank you guys. We definitely for being need to here. have you come back. It that was sounds amazing good. Please chatting with that you. Um, you can buy Ileana's book. I blame yes. Dennis Hopper now out in paperback out in, in paperback. bookstores and yeah. also at Amazon. And uh, you look at our website, ilianaspodcast.com. Also, like us on Facebook. Go, Larry, you're on. You're you're also doing. You're writing for Trailers from Hell. Oh, Trailers, Trailers from yeah. Hell is a is a cool website run Fantastic. by uh, run by Joe Dante, where he has filmmakers oh. like myself and Edgar Wright and Guillermo del Toro and Josh Olson and people like that. Uh, uh, we sort of comment on our favorite films and our, yeah. our just weird movies in general. So go to TrailersFromHell.com. Educational as well as entertaining. It is. Yeah, it it's is. Great. I I, lo- I love. You know, it's there's so much so many resources now uh, to see movies. But what I miss is the curation. Sure, of correct. That's 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 so, the most important thing right now. I think is 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 people curating people people. Uh, you know, the, the, we're in this era of choice, and so yes, there's almost indeed. so much choice. It, you need you need someone to say no no no. This is the good one. Yes, like the Seven Little Foys. Ah, uh, if you're going to watch a vaudeville picture, go straight to the Seven Little Foys. I love I love movie again. It's sweet spot for me. Movies about right. vaudeville. All right, folks. Your life, as I always say, is a movie with a beginning, middle, and an end, and this is our end. <laughs> I'm in my third act. Yes. Uh, just today. Just right now. I just hope there's a happy ending. That's <laughs> all I'm, I'm just... You're going to die. I'm sorry. You are going to die. No. Sorry. Stop, Stop with the bad news already. Have a great day. Thanks, right, everybody. Take Bye-bye. Thanks. From producers Maria Menounos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire Popcorn Talk Network, we would like to thank you for tuning in. For questions or comments, be sure to visit PopcornTalk.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of the Popcorn Talk Network. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Popcorn Talk Network or its owners or principals.